Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. I want to um, welcome you all and thank you for coming. Um, I know there's big competition going on for a lot of exciting events today at the university, so we appreciate you coming to this event. And I want to start by acknowledging the First Nation peoples in particular. I want to pay respect to the traditional uh, custodians of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm James Dodaro, and I direct the Center for International Security Studies here at the university. And it is my pleasure and honor to introduce our distinguished speaker, uh, Professor Theo Farrell, who will present this year's uh, Michael Hintz lecture, which is, as you might have guessed, named after our benefactor, Sir Michael Hintzen. Um, now, in several ways, tonight's topic, the lecture, runs against the grain. Um, it's not something that's in the headlines. In fact, it seems we're very, very, uh, at the moment, uh, possessed by the tweeting war going on between the little rocket man, the old Doddard. Um, so why not a lecture on Korea? Um, we have world leaders speaking of World War III as imminent. Um, we, of course, um, have from academic discourse, particularly in the United States, uh, a concern, if not an obsession, about a rising power, uh, often invoking the work of Thucydides, uh, a historian 2,000 years ago who wrote about Thucydides' trap. He didn't call it that, but we now take one paragraph and say this is proof that war with China is, uh, you know, imminent if not inevitable, or inevitable if not imminent. So why Afghanistan? And I have several reasons I just want to briefly talk about before introducing our speaker. But the main reason is because it is Australia's longest war. We're going on 16 years now. And as well, it's a war unlike what's happening with China or Korea, in which people are dying. And they've died at high rates. Um, and um, I think it's worth noting that um, the university I came from, the cost of war estimates that 173,000 casualties in the course of this war. And that doesn't include those injured, um, which is another 183,000. Um, those figures show no signs of abiding. Over 6,700 Afghan security forces were killed this year, and we're already five months in with another 2,500 dead. So. Um, I don't want to underestimate the civilian casualties. That's harder to ascertain. But the fact is, this is a war that's cost us a great deal, us here being NATO forces, but Australians, um, the US, and others. And it's also a fact that less than 1% of our populations, in this case, uh, in Australia, I think it's half that rate, are fighting this war. And they're fighting it over and over again with multiple rotations. So, I really believe, and particularly in light of the fact that the U.S. president just approved um, the deployment of 4,000 more troops to Afghanistan, and um, our prime minister has uh, responded that he will um, send, if requested, more Australian troops. And the fact is that just a few days ago, it was revealed that the CIA has been given the green light to expand its program to take out leadership, not just of al-Qaeda or of ISIS, but also of Taliban leaders which is going to make a negotiated settlement that much more difficult. So I think our choice this year 
is a combination of uh, professional, um, personal, which I just want to say a brief word about, but also really moral reasons why we should be paying attention and not allow this war to be forgotten or to be remembered for the wrong reasons. Um, maybe during the Q&A, we can talk about the fact it's not okay to criticize a general who remembers this war differently than other people might, um, talking about a fallen soldier um, who um, was killed in another Twitter war erupted over that one. So the personal reason why I want to briefly um, just talk about is that when I first began our documentary film, Human Terrain, which is an effort by the U.S. military to bring academics into this effort to win the war at a time when the war was clearly being lost in the streets of Fallujah and Iraq um, and in the provinces of Afghanistan, to bring academics into the war. And what they did was they brought in scholars from my field, international security, anthropology, other fields, to help them map the terrain so that you could tell who's a friend, who's an enemy, who's in between. And that made us part of this war. And it erupted into quite a controversy. But it took a personal note when one of the people we brought in to research this documentary film was recruited by the US military into the human terrain system. He became a member of the human terrain team number one. And he was the first casualty when his um, Humvee hit an IED outside of Kost. Uh, this is Michael Batia. So I think I need to talk about Afghanistan. I want to hear from an expert who can talk about Afghanistan. But I think we have an obligation of citizens of states that are at war in Afghanistan to talk about and not allow this war to become the forgotten war. Then, of course, when I found out that the world's leading expert probably on military intervention and transformation, in particular in Afghanistan, was coming to Australia, um, this was a golden opportunity. So I'm very delighted to introduce uh, Professor Theo Farrell, who's recent emigre, along with uh, his wife, Eline Lambert, who's here with us today. Um, I want to welcome you and introduce you by just hitting a few highlights. He's going to be at the University of Wollongong. He's the Executive Dean of Law, Humanities, and the Arts. Previously, uh, he was the Dean at the City University of London. And before that, he was also the um, head of the Department of War Studies at King's College in London. Um, he's former president and chair of the British International Studies uh, Association, and uh, he has many other formal appointments. Um, but really, why um, I'm delighted to have him here today is because he is indeed someone who doesn't simply take a paragraph out of Thucydides and write a book about it. Okay, I'm sorry, but that's a little bit of a slam against Harvard professors. Um, he's lived it. He's gone several visits. He's done many, many interviews. He's um, on both sides. He sat down with Taliban leaders, and um, he's someone who um, believes that you have to um, bridge this gap between the policy world and the academic world, um, not just by simply by going to conferences, but going to zones of conflict. And so um, we're particularly honored to have him here, and in light of the fact he's on top of the 10 books he's already published, or nine books, he has a new book out um, called Winnable, I'm sorry, Unwinnable, here it is right here, uh, Unwinnable, Britain's War in Afghanistan, 2001-2014. And I want to end my introduction um, by just quoting probably one of the nicest blurbs um, you could possibly receive from an eminent um, British historian. He says, Theo Farrell has written the definitive history of what is effectively the fourth Anglo-Afghan war. 
His encyclopedic knowledge of the 13-year-long struggle derives from interviewing many of the key decision makers on both sides, as well as an intimate knowledge of the written sources, well-sourced, well-written, and riveting. Unwinnable should be studied by politicians and in military academies across the West. How-to books abound. This is the ultimate how-not-to book. So please join me in giving a warm welcome uh, to um, Professor Theo Therrell, uh, not just to uh, the University of Sydney, but to Australia. And we look forward to his remarks with a question um, period afterwards. So thank you. Uh, James, thanks for that very uh, generous introduction. And also, thank you for inviting me to give the Michael Hinze uh, lecture uh, this year. Um, and indeed, um, I'm going to be talking mostly from my book about the British war in Afghanistan, but most of my comments actually refer to the overall war effort and the experience of the overall war, which beyond Britain. I mean, for Britain, uh, most of, this, this, the, most of this, this war was mostly contained within 2001 to, 24, to 2014, so there are only a few hundred British troops left in Afghanistan. And over this period, uh, five, 456 British soldiers lost their lives uh, in Afghanistan. I should say, actually, soldiers, Marines, and air personnel. And over 2,000 uh, wounded in action. Uh, and Britain spent £37 billion pounds, uh, fighting the conflict in Afghanistan. When you look at the US uh, effort, uh, the British effort pales even by comparison. Uh, the United States spent around about uh, close on $700 billion fighting the war in Afghanistan. And when you add the cost of medical care for returning personnel, it's going to be likely in the trillions. Uh, you know, over 2,300 US service personnel have been killed in action in Afghanistan. It's America's longest war, it's the longest war in US history. And, and as much as James quite rightly pointed out, longest war for Australia, for a country like America that's fought many large great wars, this is actually one of the really great wars. And what is striking indeed is exactly what James pointed out, is that it's a grave danger of, becoming, of becoming a forgotten war. It's really quite striking. So, I mean, I have a basic argument in the book. Um, the book covers a lot of terrain, and I'm going to cover quite a lot of terrain in this lecture, but there's a core argument. Um, and, and it's got to do with the inability of the British, and the same applies to the Americans and to the Australians in Aruskan, the inability of Western militaries to convert tactical success into strategic success. Because the headline is that all of these militaries over time become much better. They become very good at waging counterinsurgency. And yet, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because they cannot win this war. Uh, and the title does rather give away the argument. So what we see in the case of the British, for instance, is that is the bulk of the British effort occurs in southern Afghanistan in, in a remote, backward province called Helmand, which before the British turned up just didn't matter. I mean, no one cared about Helmand, even in Afghanistan. Uh, when the British arrive, they send a task force in 2006, and they simply blunder into the province. It's a very large province, for all its backward character. The British deploy 4,000 troops into this province. Uh, as, as, as one keen observer noted, uh, too small to create any real security, but just large enough to cause a lot of trouble. Uh, the British know just, they know very little about Helmand. They know just enough to know that the governor, Sher Mohammed Aghazada, is about the most corrupt person you can imagine. So they go, okay, we're arriving to create security and improve governance, so we want this guy gone. And they insist that Sher Mohammed Akhazada is fired as the governor as a condition of them deploying forces. 
And so Karzai, Hamid Karzai, who's then the president, reluctantly fires Sher Mohammed Akhazadeh. What the British don't calculate is that several hundred of uh, Sher Mohammed Akhazadeh's tribespeople, who are his militia, turn around and promptly join the Taliban. And so before they know it, they've doubled the Taliban forces in Northern Helmand. So they make a series of elementary mistakes. They then deploy the task force. The task force, of course, is there to support the government. So they support the district governors. They support the police. But the point is that the district governors are also highly corrupt. The police are controlled by one of the major tribal groupings, the Norzai. So all the British are doing are taking sides in what is effectively a civil war in Helmand. And the British also, as, as a country, lead the counter-narcotics effort for the whole of Afghanistan. And Helmand is the major uh, poppy-producing area of Afghanistan. Most of it comes from Helmand. Almost everybody in Helmand is involved in some way in the drugs trade, even indirectly. So if you go after the drugs trade, you're going after the livelihood of every single person almost in Helmand. And the British military know this, and they're very reluctant, but they have no choice but to provide some support. And the net effect is, by 2007, there's a general uprising against the British. So they just blunder in. But the point is, over time, they get better. This is, the, this is the basic argument. What we see are better tactics, better resources, more troops. The British send uh, task forces on six-month rotations. And progressively, the task forces get bigger and bigger. The next task force is 6,000. The next task force is 7,500. The next is 8,500. Finally, they stabilize at 9,500. That makes a big difference, actually, to the British effort in central Helmand. They arrive at better equipment. Initially, the British deploy in vehicles that are easily blown up. But within a few years, they're deploying in vehicles that are very difficult to kill people when they blow up. And that makes a big difference to the British effort. Uh, and crucially, they change tactics. The first 18 months, first three British deployments, they try and defeat the Taliban through major combat operations to inflict the military defeat in the Taliban. And after 18 months, the British kind of realize this isn't working. And then they begin to change tactics. And successive task forces thereafter shift to their primary effort is to supporting civilian efforts to improve government, public services, and infrastructure. And that is a key shift. And they also develop much more precise ways of using force, which is critical. So by 2009 and 10, the British developed really precise ways of using force. And, and key to this is drones. So everyone out there who thinks drones are bad because drones are all about dropping bombs on people, at this time, it's certainly, that's wrong. The primary purpose of drones is to provide 24-7 eyes in the sky so you can see what's happening. And it enables the British, as with the Americans, by the, by the, uh, by the 2010, 9, 29 10 to use force in very precise ways to target people. And that means you're killing fewer civilians. And linking up drones and balloons with, with cameras, with attack helicopters and special forces, you get very precise use of force. And all of this makes a, diff makes a difference. And none of this should be surprising to anyone in this room who's a historian of war. And I spent 13 years in an institution that was stuffed full of historians of war. And what historians of war will tell you is, in almost every war where a country goes to war, and it's a new war for that country, their military will make a whole series of mistakes. Their plans will be wrong, they'll have the wrong equipment, their tactics will be wrong. And over time, if they don't get defeated in the first couple of years, the militaries will get better. It's, it happens time and again in history. And that's what happens with the British and the Australians and the Americans in Afghanistan. And here's the but. But the simple fact is that even though that by 2010, Britain has essentially created security in central Helmand, they've locked it down really effectively. And the Americans have done likewise in big chunks of Afghanistan. 
they cannot convert these tactical gains into strategic success. And this is the basic reason why. The fact is that in counterinsurgency, you don't win wars by defeating your enemy militarily. Unlike conventional war. In conventional war, the basic idea is to rock up, destroy, smash the opponent's army, grab their ground, stick your army on their ground, you've won. That's how it works. In counterinsurgency, it doesn't work that way. The key ground is not terrain. The key ground are people in counterinsurgency. That's the key ground you're fighting over. And hence, counterinsurgency is about winning hearts and minds, winning the people over. In this case, persuading the people that life is better under the Afghan government than it is under the Taliban. That's what victory looks like. And no amount of fighting the Taliban is going to achieve that. Interesting enough, uh, there's a concept in military planning called the center of gravity. It's the, the, that, it's the thing that will unlock success. And in counterinsurgency, the center of gravity actually is not the hearts and minds of the people. It's government. Because ultimately, it's effective. It's not too corrupt. And reasonably competent government is the key, is the center of gravity in counterinsurgency. Because that's what ensures long-term public support for the government. The basic problem is it doesn't matter how good the British, the Australian, and the American military are, they're not going to create good government. And that's why this war is unwinnable. Okay, let's get into it then. In, in the, interesting enough, when I was doing the book, because Britain's not hugely involved in the early parts of the war, I said to my agent, uh, I'm just going to talk about 2006 onwards in the British war in Helmand. And he said, oh no, you can't do that. You have to go back to the beginning and tell the whole story. I thought, oh God, really? And we've had so many you know, accounts of 9-11, and it is so horrendous. I mean, it is just horrendous what happened to 9-11. Do I really have to go back? He said, yes, you've got to tell the story from the beginning. But what is interesting is if you go out there on the street and you ask people about why did we go to war in Afghanistan, you get stories about oil, about minerals. People get confused with Iraq. They don't fully understand, was it really necessary? And what I actually do in my book is, I, in the first two chapters, I go back and I put you in the mindset of policymakers as they experienced what was happening, unfolding in 9-11. Um, and basically, they didn't have the faintest idea what was happening. It was just happening so fast. What they saw were planes falling out of skies into buildings. And, and their point was, Al-Qaeda did it once, they could do it again. In fact, they were preparing for further waves of attack, uh, of further attacks of that nature from Al-Qaeda. So to, if you, the simple question is, was Afghanistan a necessary war? At the outset, there's no doubts whatsoever because there were extensive training camps for Al-Qaeda operatives throughout Afghanistan, the US military had to lead an intervention into Afghanistan to, to unroot Al-Qaeda. That's very hard to argue otherwise. In terms of the war itself, though, it's interesting because the, there was a war cabinet that um, Bush, President George W. Bush convened the day after 9-11, understandably. Uh, he was, the day of 9-11, he was flying thousands of miles, in the, you know, thousands of feet in the sky. So, but when he wanted to go back to Washington, convened a war, in fact, it's outside of Washington, convened a war cabinet, and turned around to his military and said, right, what's the plan? America has the most powerful military in the world. What are we going to do? And the fact is, the US military didn't have a plan. They didn't have the faintest idea what they were going to do. Afghanistan is a landlocked country, has very little urban landscape that has survived the Civil War. There's hardly anything to bomb. You can't send an army in. You can't use the Navy. So from the US military's point of view, it's a nightmare. There was like nothing they could do. And, and George Bush was slightly peeved that it had been spent billions in the US military, and yet here, here was America at war, and they couldn't do anything. And this is where George Tennant came in, the director of the CIA, because the CIA had a plan. 
The CIA plan was to send in CIA paramilitary teams with suitcases full of cash and GPS uh, trackers. And they were going to provide large amounts of cash, literally millions of dollars in cash, to uh, anti-Taliban factions, mostly the Northern Alliance in the north, but some of the, the anti-Taliban Pashtun in the south. And they would also bring with them laser pointers that they could use to guide US bombers onto targets. And that basically became the US war plan. Now it's referred to by academics as the Afghan model. US air power combined with special forces and CIA paramilitary teams and local allies. And that effectively what defeated the Taliban. So what happens is the first, uh, and, if, and when they were briefing this on the 13th of, of, of September, two days later, um, the head of the CIA counterterrorism center, uh, who, which basically ran the whole campaign, the CIA campaign, Koffer Black, he announced that Al-Qaeda and Taliban would be defeated in a matter of weeks. And he told uh, President Bush, when we are through with them, they will have flies walking on their eyeballs. This creeped out the White House advisors. They began to refer to him as the eyeballs guy. Uh, and, and so within, you know, within literally uh, two weeks later, the first CIA uh, paramilitary teams from the legendary CIA Special Activities Division, uh, now there's tons of these guys crawling around, but there are far fewer than them. They were deployed in, and what with them, $3 million in cash, and began to just hand it out. Uh, US airstrikes started shortly thereafter on the 7th of October. Uh, within three days, the US Army's 5th Special Operations Group deployed into Uzbekistan, uh, and they began to send special forces teams in. And the job of the special forces was to guide air power onto targets. That was a basic job. Uh, within a matter of weeks, by the 14th of November, the whole northern front of the Taliban had collapsed, and, and Kabul had been seized uh, by the Northern Alliance. These are, are non-Pashtun. So they're uh, Tajik, and, uh, mostly Tajik, but also Uzbek um, and Hazara, non-Pashtu um, opponents of, of the Taliban. Uh, by late November, the CIA had, had tracked Osama bin Laden to a cave complex in Tora Bora. And sure enough, they just they guided the air power down. And for, uh, for days on end, they rained down bombs. They dropped 1,650 bombs on 18 square miles. That may not sound a lot, like a lot. That is a, a lot of tonnage of, of bombs on a very small front, frontage. Uh, if you actually look at newspaper articles at the time, which I've done, they imagine a sort of a James Bond-style complex in Tora Bora. You know these kinds of blowfelt and the, the missiles and the rockets and all this, the trains. And in fact, it was very basic. The Tora Bora complex was very basic, but it, it did the business. It was a deep cave complex that the Al-Qaeda, there was hundreds of Al-Qaeda operatives in there that could basically sit out the bombings. Uh, and so um, a few days later, uh, US, Australian, and British Special Forces went in on the ground, uh, and they, they just tried to root these guys out. The problem is that nobody secured the perimeter. And according to the US Army official history, as many as 1,500 fighters, these are all Al-Qaeda, uh, may have escaped to fight another day. They went right across the border to Pakistan, as did Osama bin Laden, of course, in his his um, headhunters. This is why um, uh, the, US, uh, the, uh, the American um, uh, uh, defense expert, Michael O'Hanlon, refers to Operation Enduring Freedom, uh, and particularly the, the Tora Bora, part of Operation Enduring Freedom, which is the US campaign in Afghanistan, as a flawed masterpiece. Uh, because the fact is that Al-Qaeda and, and the Taliban were defeated within a matter of weeks. Indeed, within two months, the US had, had overthrown the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. 
And in the process, they've killed somewhere between eight to 12,000 Taliban and Al-Qaeda. As much as 20% of, of, of the Taliban forces were obliterated by US air power. Uh, but the fact is that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban leadership escaped. Sorry, back one. Um, the future of Afghanistan was decided at Bonn, in a hotel outside of Bonn, in, a, in about a week, actually, in the 27th of November. In fact, if anyone studies diplomacy and how negotiations can occur quickly, this is a really amazing case study. Uh, because British and American diplomats, really winging it, managed to get several different factions together and agree a future for Afghanistan inside a week. And the reason why it had to happen in a week is because they only had the hotel for a week. And there was a big dentistry convention about to come in. And they were about to be turfed out. Uh, but um, but Latgar Brahimi referred to this as the original sin because the Taliban were not invited. Now, it might seem like, why would they be invited? Because they've just been defeated. But the point is, they weren't really defeated. They were defeated on the battlefield. But they, like, they were in insurgency. They could come back to fight another day. Um, now, you could argue, actually, however, that the fighting was still quite fresh. And it was a bit nonsense that they would turn up to negotiations, even if you invited them. But the point is that nobody gave any thought in Washington or London as to what we do when we defeat these guys. And so for actually, the defeat of the Taliban, the final defeat occurred uh, between the 7th and the 5th, uh, the 5th and the 7th of December, when they, when they basically abandoned Kandahar, uh, which is their homeland, of uh, Kandahar city. <laughs> and on the 5th of December, Mullah Omar, who was the head of the Taliban, uh, sends Mullah Obudallah, who is the Taliban Minister of Defense, to negotiate the Taliban surrender with Hamid Karzai, who at the time was emerging as a, ma as a major kind of, he was to become the first president of Afghanistan. At the time, he was a major leader in the Southern Pashtun anti-Taliban alliance. Um, and so uh, Mullah Obudallah turns up with his people uh, outside of Kandahar to negotiate with Karzai. And, and in the Afghan way of war, this is what you expect. When you're defeated, you're supposed to go and negotiate and, and what happens is you accept someone's surrender and you take their, their trucks and you take their guns and you give some of them back. And that's the deal. That's how it works in Afghan culture. But in American strategic culture, the way that you win a war is you obliterate your opponents completely. And then they turn up on a battleship somewhere and they sign a document saying we utterly surrender. Right? That's the American way of war. It's different. And so they hadn't given any thought to this. And so when, 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 when there was a colonel with Karzai who was the US special advisor, when he alerted Rumsfeld that this negotiation was happening, Rumsfeld basically said, we will only accept unconditional surrender. And that was not acceptable to the Taliban. And that was the original sin, actually. Um, from my point of view, the big mistake that the West made was not then leaving. We stayed. Job had been done. Taliban had been overthrown. Al-Qaeda had been really eviscerated in Afghanistan. Good time to leave. And instead, the West stayed and they, and they took on a hopelessly ambitious nation-building mission. And they deployed a massive peacekeeping force into Afghanistan. Now, the initial force that went in, which is a few thousand strong, went in just to Kabul. And its job was just to secure the new Afghan government and to stop Kabul descending in, back into civil war. And the person driving this was Tony Blair, the British Prime Minister. And what Blair was thinking about was the Balkans. You know, because you have different ethnic rivalries in Afghanistan, and he was intensely concerned that, that we would see a, a sort of balkanization occur again in Afghanistan and return to civil war. So it seemed logical that you would put in a peacekeeping force. This became the International uh, Security Assistance Force. It went in in December 2001, pulled together very quickly by the British, 
It secured Kabul, did a good job. Um, and then what happened was, in 2002 and three, it was decided by degrees to expand. And that was the mistake. Uh, and what's interesting is, the expansion of, Af Af of ISAF had far less to do about securing Afghanistan. It was more about securing NATO. And the key context here was the collapse in transatlantic relations over the Iraq war. So you might remember that in February 2003, a major row broke out between the Germans and the French on one hand and the Americans on the other. Because the Germans and the French in particular, but also other Europeans, refused, were already indicating they were not going to support the Americans in the Security Council when they were seeking a resolution to use force against Iraq. Uh, and this, this, beca this became a shouting match, actually, between both sides. And that's when Rumsfeld talked about old Europe. I don't care about old Europe. I, I'm, I'm more concerned about new Europe, you know, Poland and so forth. Um, the US ambassador to NATO referred to that period as a near-death experience for NATO. Uh, so what happened was, after that, sort of in the months that followed, April, May uh, 2003, the Europeans realized they had to patch up relations with America. At the same time, the Americans were desperately keen to get out of Afghanistan because they were pouring resources in to prepare for the invasion of Iraq. And so you had a perfect convergence of interests. NATO would take over the ISAF mission. The Americans would still be involved, but they'd take the back seat, and the Americans would ramp up for the war in Iraq. And when NATO took over the ISAF mission, they decided to expand ISAF beyond Kabul, first to the north, then to the west, then to the south, then to the east. And the reason, this is called the counterclockwise strategy. And the reason you expand that way is because you go to the easy bits of Afghanistan first. The north is where all the, and, and the west is where the Tajiks and the Uzbeks and the Zaras are. And, these, and the Taliban draws most of its strength from the Pashtun heartlands of the south and the east. So this was going to be the easy part. Uh, so NATO takes over in 2003 uh, and, and begins to expand. But actually, by 2005, it had, it had stalled. Uh, in the West, and the NATO expansion to the South hadn't happened. And that's because everyone took a deep breath and went, oh my God, this is going to be difficult. And everyone was very nervous about going to the South. And it took the British to say, okay, we will step up to the plate and go South. The British were in the North at the time. And they said, well, we'll give that to the Germans because, you know, anyone could do that. <laughs> seriously, you know, we couldn't trust them to do the South. You need, a, you need a real army to do the South. And we'll do the South because we're a real army. And so the British decided to lead the deployment to the South along with the Canadians and the Australians. And that's what happens, and everyone flows into the south. Um, and what you get then is this. And so by 2006 to 2008, this is what the war effort looks like. Um, it's the, by the way, people don't refer to it as a war. It's, very, it's a military campaign or a campaign. But the language of war is not actually used. But for, for big chunks of Afghanistan, it was a war. But what you have is you, got, you have effectively uh, two mi you got three missions. So. Oh, awesome. You've got here in the north and the west, this is a peacekeeping mission that NATO is, 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 uh, NATO is engaged in. And the Germans here and the Swedes and the Norwegians uh, and the Spanish and the Italians, they don't want to fight a war. They're not interested in fighting. So this is all peacekeeping as far as they're concerned. They refer to it as peacekeeping. And it was largely peaceful. You know, so that was pretty good. But you've got a second mission, which is what's happening in the south and the east. And this is high-intensity counterinsurgency. We're talking about waves of Taliban trying to overrun outposts that have been held by Western and Afghan troops. And for the British here, it's the, it's the hardest fighting they've seen since Korea. Several of their outposts literally are fighting back waves of Taliban, calling masses of airstrikes just to stay alive. 
So this is high-intensity counterinsurgency down here. And then you've got a third mission, which is all over Afghanistan. You have US special forces and CIA hunting down at Taliban and al-Qaeda leaders. And this is the counterterrorism mission. So you haven't got one war, you've got three missions. It's even worse, of course, because you've got five regional commands. So this is the ISAF. It's divided into five regional commands, center, east, south, west, north, each with a different headquarters. And then to make things even more complicated, each national task force, the Americans, the Canadians, the Brits, Danish, Norwegians, etc., etc., have their own campaign plan because they answer to their own national capital. So it's a complete bloody mess. What you don't have is, in war, you need two basic things if you're going to have any chance of success. You need unity of command and unity of effort. You don't have that here. And you also have, you're trying to win the hearts and minds of the people. It's very hard to win the hearts and minds of the people when you're killing them. Yeah, it's quite simple. Uh, now, admittedly, what you actually have here is that the, 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 the purple bits, the bits that are, 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 are civilians that are killed by, by Western forces. So most of them, most of them are killed by, by insurgents or non-government forces. But still, the overall picture is not looking good. It's an upward trajectory here, right? So uh, since really from 2005 onwards, Karzai begins to complain in private again and again to ISAF commanders about civilian casualties. By 2007, it seems like no one's listening. He begins to complain publicly about civilian casualties. Also, uh, many Afghans are complaining about harassment because the counterterrorism mission are conducting night raids. They conduct night raids they claimed because it causes fewer civilian casualties because people are in their homes. But actually it's because they, they can use their night vision to control the battle space when they do night raids. But for Afghans, it is deeply, gravely insulting for Western troops to kick in their doors and come into their private spaces where their families are, particularly when, when, when there's women in those locations. It's a grave offense to an Afghan to do that, particularly in the pasture, rural pasture areas. So they're almost as outraged by these night raids as they are by civilian casualties. And interesting enough, as part of the work that I did, uh, I did a study with a, a colleague called Antonio Giustosi, where we tried to reconstruct what the war looked like from the Taliban point of view. Um, and we interviewed 67 Taliban. Uh, and many of them spoke of the cruelty of the Americans and British as reasons for why they joined uh, the Taliban. Six in particular cited the fact that they'd lost family members, and that's why they joined the Taliban. So the whole thing was a mess. And then President Obama is elected. And President Obama, when he was running for office in 2008, he, he pointed out that, that America had taken his eye off the ball. He said, as he put it in his CBS interview in July 2008, one of the biggest mistakes we have made strategically after 9-11 was to fail to finish the job in Afghanistan. We got distracted by Iraq. Uh, in January, he sends the Vice President-elect Joe Biden to Afghanistan to find out what's going on. Biden comes back saying, it's a mess. The war, there's no one in really in charge. The war has been waged by... by Autopilot. And so what they decided to do is fire the commander, David McKernan, and they replaced him with this man here, General Stanley McChrystal. General Stanley McChrystal is the man who revolutionized the American Special Forces campaign in Iraq. And at this stage, he was, he was head of the Joint Staff in, in, in the Pentagon. Uh, he was seen as a highly innovative general. Um, in his testimony, so he, was, he, was, he, was, he replaced the other guy in, in May 2009. And in June, he testified before Congress, and he said, central to counterinsurgency is protecting the people. This is a struggle for the support of the Afghan people. Our willingness to operate in ways that minimize casualties or damage, even when doing so makes our job more difficult, 
is essential to our credibility. He said this was the most important thing we've got to do. So he set out to redefine the fight. And his approach that he brought had three key elements. One is he talked about population-centric coin. It's actually, it, it, you don't need to add the word population-centric. Counterinsurgency, by definition, should be population-centric. Population but he felt the need to add that just to underline to his soldiers. We're not there to kill people. We're there to protect the population. Uh, and he said, our job is to protect the population from violence, intimidation, and corruption. He, so he introduced new rules of engagement to make it more difficult to kill civilians. And, and the watchword that came down from his command, which went to all troops, was courageous restraint. If you're in a firefight, it doesn't matter if you're taking casualties, you don't drop bombs on houses if there are civilians in them, which is what they were doing previously. And, and in fact, one internal study did show that under his term, uh, from mid-2009 to late 2010, there was a real terms 50% decrease in civilian casualties. The second thing that he was looking at was Basically, the way out was to build up the Afghan security forces. That was America's way out. Uh, and the Afghan security forces then stood at 86,000, which due to grow to 134,000 in 2011. And he brought forward that target by one year. So you're growing the forces very quickly. And the point is, it's very difficult to produce good soldiers quickly. It just doesn't work that way. So he had to try and square that circle. Added to the fact that the Afghan soldiers weren't good soldiers, they were terrible soldiers. They were plagued by corruption. The Afghan army was plagued by corruption, drug, drug abuse, uh, endemic drug, drug abuse, illiteracy, ethnic rivalry, and terrible leadership. Um, captains and colonels wouldn't go out in the field with their troops. They'd stay back in the barracks drinking tea and they'd send the troops out. That was the Afghan way. And then, to top it all, there was a 50% shortfall in military trainers. So he produces a new, a totally new way of doing um, uh, partnering. She calls embedded partnering. And he, he directs that ISAF will partner with the Afghan security forces at all levels, from government ministries down to platoon. We will live, plan, control, and execute operations together. So whereas previously, Western forces would be in big bases and they'd drive out in big convoys, then now they would be in the field, in the platoon houses, in the checkpoints with the Afghans' uh, partners. And lastly was a focus on governance. And this is real innovation. Military commands aren't supposed to do governance. They're not supposed to do government. The point is no one else was, no one else was focusing on sub-national governments. The basic insight here is what really matters in counterinsurgency is not really national government, it's local government, right? Because that's, that's where people connect with governments at a local level. And, and the State Department and others were focusing on national government. No one was focusing on local government. So his people said, right, if, it doesn't matter. If no one's doing that, we're going to get into that space. Uh, and so they did a number of programs to try and accelerate local government in, in 80 key terrain districts. So there are 100, 390 districts in Afghanistan. They said 80 is where we'll focus because they're really important. And we'll put a lot of effort into supporting local government. And this was, this was drawn from a key insight that he brought to the campaign, which is that the major risk to the Western effort and the Afghan government was not, were not Taliban military forces. It was Taliban shadow government. That was the thing that would bring Taliban success and undermine the Western effort. Uh, okay, so to back it up, uh, what we see is a big ramping up of troops. Uh, President, President Obama uh, immediately approved, uh, sorry, President Bush had already approved 14,000 extra troops. President Obama um, does a big review of the war in Afghanistan, and after extensive review of the war, he agrees to deploy 33,000 more troops. That, lead, that brings 
U.S. force levels up to about 100,000. At the same time, there are around 30,000 non-U.S. troops in Afghanistan. But what he does, President Obama, when he, President Obama is very cautious. And actually, his, his presidency was all about getting America out of wars. That's what he really wanted to do, because he wanted to focus on national politics. He was horrified at how, how expensive these wars were. So he actually wanted to get America out of the war game altogether. <coughs> so even though he said we need to focus on Afghanistan, that's because he couldn't, he couldn't be elected president saying we're going to get out of all wars altogether. He actually wanted to, to also get out of Afghanistan. Um, but you know, he's persuaded we had to try and double down on the effort. So he gave, he gave General McChrystal 32,000 extra troops. But he said, you can only have them for 18 months. He, said in eight, he, he gave a big speech at West Point in December 2009. He said, we're going to put, it's in our national interest to put 30,000 more troops in. In the end, 33,000 went in. But I want them back in 18 months. They'll start to come home. And, and this is a problem. Counterinsurgency is not quick. It's really, really slow. And so McChrystal actually was being given a deadline. Uh, so that meant that I, he had to concentrate. General McChrystal had to focus. Most of the troops actually were going into the south. And you can see it straight away. Look where all the troops go. They go into the south. And that's because Kandahar is seen as the major weak point in the whole campaign. It's the second largest city in Afghanistan. It's the gateway to trade from, Afghanistan, from Pakistan through Afghanistan into the, into the, into the northern into the, uh, the, the stands above uh, and into uh, Iran and Turkey. It's incredibly important. It's the heartland of the Taliban. And it was seen as the weak point. So it's inte the intention is to flood troops into the south. As it happens, most of the initial troops going in were U.S. Marines, 20,000 U.S. Marines. And they don't flood into Kandahar. They flood into Helmand. And the reason why they flood into Helmand is there's big chunks of Helmand that no one's occupying. And the U.S. Marines don't want to fight with anyone but themselves. But, but they want to be by themselves, basically. So they go to Helmand. Uh, and so General McChrystal goes, OK, we can't do Kandahar, but Helmand's next door. It's related to Kandahar, so we will focus on Helmand. Uh, and he wants, what he wants to do is he's looking for, I was in Kabul at the time, I was in Kabul in January, doing some work with General McChrystal around war planning. And he was trying to find a campaign accelerator. Something, he had 18 months, he had to do something that would inflict a strategic defeat in the Taliban to demonstrate to everyone the war was turning around. And Helmand was going to be that. So it's decided to launch a major, a major uh, military operation called Operation Mosh Tarak in February 2010 in central Helmand to take a part, a small part of central Helmand called Marja from the Taliban. So we're focusing on one province and one district in one province. 9,000 American, British, and Afghan forces go into central Helmand. The Brits are doing something just north in a place called Nadi Ali. Uh, and the idea is to try and kick the Taliban out of Marja, a big drug producing area, and, and pay presto, produce local government. And General McChrystal says, we have government in a box. You know, we'll turn up, we'll defeat the Taliban, and out will spring government. And this is part of the efforts that his command were doing to support local government. Uh, so he's, he wanted to shine everything on, on, on Marja to prove that there would be big success. And sure enough, the US Marines fly in by helicopter, waves of helicopter in February. Within a the Taliban run away, basically, which is a good move. And for a month or so, it looks good. The local government's a bit slow to get off the ground, but it looks good. But the fact is, the Taliban never went away. They just buried their guns, and they stuck around. And whenever the Americans tried to get locals to help out or join in, the Taliban would go, don't do that. And so by degrees, the Taliban undermine all the American efforts through intimidation. 
and then before you know it, they begin to bring the guns out. And, and within a matter of months, Marja is once again a lawless place with Marines and Taliban. Uh, and so uh, McChrystal ends up referring to Marja as a bleeding ulcer. He just can't do anything with Marja. It infuriates him. And yet everyone is looking at Marja. It's the bright, shiny object that everyone is focused on, somebody told me in Washington at the time. And of course, it's a failure. McChrystal is out, thanks to an article in Rolling Stone at the time, uh, which uh, portrayed him as this loose cannon. And he does say some ill-advised things about his political masters, but actually it was a very unfair portrayal of, of him. But the underlying thing was, in fact, the tension between the White House and ISAF, because they had given him the troops and he hadn't delivered what they wanted. And so it was time for a fresh lead. And that fresh lead is General Petres, the man that turned the war around in Iraq from 2007 and 2008 who at the time was the US Central, commander of US Central Command. He was superior to General Crystal, and in a very unusual move, he was asked to basically take a demotion and take on the war effort in Afghanistan. This is a man that was recovering, you know, he was, he was very ill at the time, he was recovering from treatment, um, uh, but he agrees to take on this effort, actually. Uh, and so he takes over the war. And he brings with him a whole new direction. So whereas, General McChrystal had been focused on counterinsurgency, had been focused on courageous restraint, on protecting the people. General Petraeus says, we don't have time for that. We need, to, we need to capture and kill Taliban as fast as we can. And so he wants to do is he wants to demonstrate to Washington that they can turn the war around by more time. As he puts it, we want to put more time on the shot clock, which I believe is a baseball metaphor, or basketball, I don't know, I don't follow sports. Um, so his watchword is relentless pursuit. He wants his troops to go after Taliban. He, he tells them uh, that uh, I want you to get your teeth into the insurgency and don't let go. And he begins to brief this. And I was, I, then, I was in Kabul in, in, uh, in late 2010, and he was briefing this slide. This, this is a body count slide. right? It, body counts went out of fashion in Vietnam. You're not supposed to be following body counts in counterinsurgency. And this is a body count slide. Number of, of insurgent leaders killed or captured, numbers of insurgents captured, number of insurgents killed. The problem with this course is we don't know how many of these are actually insurgents or not. We don't know how many are leaders or not. Yeah. Um, and the thing is the Taliban adapt. The enemy adapts, the enemy has a vote. What the Taliban do over this time is they realize that whenever they turn up, they get killed. So initially, for the first couple of years, they try and overrun Western bases. They send, effectively, the Taliban act like light, light infantry. And they, they try and over, overrun Western bases. But the point is the British and the Australians and the Americans have too much firepower. And they just sit in these bases and they just use machine guns and they use missiles and they call in airstrikes and they just kill the Taliban. And after a while, the Taliban realize this is not working and they change tactics. Uh, and so, um, and in fact, in our interviews, show this very clearly. 23 of the, interview, of the people we interviewed across nine districts in Helmand said that, that there was a clear shift in tactics between 2008 and 2010. Twelve interviews referred to a general order from the Quetta Shura instructing them to change tactics. And many talked about mobile teams coming in to train them in guerrilla tactics, making suicide vests, making IEDs. The Taliban get very, very good at making low-tech IEDs that are difficult to detect. And these become the major killer of Western Afghan forces. The fact is that notwithstanding these adaptations, the Taliban get, take very heavy casualties in the Western, uh, through the Western campaign. So one of the things we did is we asked interviewees, 
How many, how many people are, are in your fighting group? And how many have died in the last year? And you have to be very careful because Afghans don't think about numbers the way that we think about numbers. It's just a cultural thing. So most Afghans don't actually know what age they are. They, they, they just think about things slightly differently, which is fine. But we, have to, we are trying to gauge this. And from the information that we got, 20, 28 interviewees were prepared to tell us how many troops they had, how many fighters they had, sorry, they had, how many comrades in their fighting groups, and how many were martyred. And from that, we calculated around 20% of Taliban. That was 20% attrition in Taliban forces in Helmand uh, in, in 2011 and 2012. So they're taking very heavy casualties. But I come back to my argument. Even though in central Helmand, notwithstanding the problems in Marja, actually in central Helmand, British and American forces were able to stabilize it and cause very heavy attrition to Taliban forces, just could not win this war. And these are the reasons why. Government is too corrupt, so you can't win over the people. And Pakistan is supporting your insurgency. And I guarantee you there's no, uh, I, I understand, there's no insurgency in history where if you've got a neighboring country providing support for the insurgency, you can defeat it. It's impossible. The basic problem with Afghan corruption is that we pay for it. We built the most corrupt state that can be, can be bought. Right? We just poured billions of dollars of aid to Afghanistan. And the reason why we did that was because our exit strategy was to build up the Afghan state and the Afghan army and, and, and police. And we were trying to do that as fast as possible because we wanted to get out. And the problem, of course, is you overwhelm the capacity of the state to spend money responsibly. You created these bidding frenzies where people were bidding for all sorts of infrastructure projects. And, and the point is, to bid and get access to these contracts, you pay off people. This is constant bribery going on. Uh, and some people in the room might be familiar with the idea of a renter state, where the government buys off, buys the support of everyone, and usually that's through oil, oil money. And some people thought this was a renter state, where Western aid coming in was funneling in the top and was being used to buy off everyone. Actually, that's not what was happening. It was in reverse. Money was being channeled up because people were buying their positions. The police checkpoint person, police checkpoint officer, would buy his position. He'd pay the local chief police for that position. The local chief police would pay the district chief police for his position. The district guy would pay the provincial guy and up into the ministry. And money was passing off the line. And that was all bribes. So you, you constantly pay bribes. I mean, even I. Come out, one time coming out of Kabul, dropped in Kabul airport. My paperwork wasn't quite, perf wasn't quite right. The bodyguards had left. And the checkpoint guy was going, you can't come in. I said, $20? Yep, yeah, that's fine. In you go. Yeah, that's how it works. Uh, so to give you some you know, scale of the problem, uh, the United Nations Organization for Drugs and Crime in 2009-10 estimated the total amount of bribes paid in Afghanistan was $2.5 billion. That's 25% of Afghan GDP. Yeah. Uh, and there were some really spectacular examples. Kabul Bank, which is the major bank in Kabul, uh, that's where all the Western money went in to pay for the civil servants and salaries, but more importantly, the security force salaries. Um, it was discovered in late 2010 the bank, was, the bank was, was, was broke. Most of the money was gone. Yeah. $935 million had been looted out of the bank. It had been given in unsecured loans to 19 individuals, one of whom was the president's brother. The money was never recovered. Yeah. The other problem has got to do with Pakistan. Because the, the problem with Pakistan is that it was, at very best, an unwilling ally of the United States. Um, and Pakistan, of course, had long-standing relations with the Taliban. They were one of the first states to support the Taliban. And there were close links between the Taliban and the, and the, and the Pakistan Intelligence Service, the ISI. 
Now, the Bush administration said to the Pakistanis at 9-11, you must back us now. You're with us or against us. So you better, you know, you better play ball. But they also tried to buy them off. So they, they gave a $5.5 billion age package to Pakistan from 2002 to 2007. And they paid an additional $6 billion to allow the for the Pakistanis to allow them to truck all their supplies through to uh, for the war. Because here's the thing. There's the war. If you're fighting a war in Afghanistan and you need lots and lots of supplies, how do you get them in? There are the ports. There's the country. That's how you get them in, through Pakistan. And the Americans paid $6 billion to Pakistan to allow them to do that for five years. And there's your basic problem. Because your basic problem is, if Pakistan doesn't play ball, there's nothing you can do about it. And why is that? Because you've got to truck your supplies through that country. There's nothing you can do. And, that should, and there's a second problem, which is the, packet, the Taliban recruit from madrasas all along here. That's, their, that's, where, that's where the Taliban have all their, uh, their schools so they can recruit young people to fight in the war. And the people who really control that are the Pakistan intelligence services. And if they wanted to turn on a tap, which they did in 2006, they can flood fighters into Afghanistan. That's what they did in 2006, 2007. And there's your basic problem. So the, the, the Obama administration goes, you know, comes in going, we're going we're to reset. We're going to reset things with Taliban. The era of the blank check is over. So they give, instead of $5 billion to Pakistan, they give $1.5 billion. And they say, you must do certain things if you want the aid. And there's a complete uproar in Pakistan. So they, they dispatch Hillary Clinton to try and you know, calm things down. Pa nope. So they have to give Pakistan army $2 billion more just to calm down. Yeah. It just, and so when, the, when President Trump now says that he's going to put you know, pressure on Pakistan... So why, why is Pakistan not playing ball? The wrong enemy is the title of Karlasha Gale's book. Uh, she's a journalist, where she says, the war in Afghanistan, the problem's not the Taliban, it's actually Pakistan. And why do they play ball? Well, two reasons. One is strategic calculation. They expect the West to fail and leave Afghanistan, and then it's, it's everyone, everyone in the region is trying to get their person in power. And at the time, you had a pro-Indian president, Hamid Karzai, in power, and you basically Tajik-dominated government as far as they were concerned. So they want to pack the Taliban as an alternative power base. But the other is politics. Uh, the simple fact of the matter is that the Taliban cause was immensely popular in Pakistan. As, as Anatol Levin, my, my co former colleague Anatol Levin, Levin uh, noted, the overwhelming majority of Pakistanis see the Afghan Taliban as engaged in a legitimate war of resistance against foreign occupation, analogous to the Mujahideen War against Soviet occupation in the 1990s. So, by this stage, everyone's just fed up. I mean, the Obama administration's fed up, the Brits are fed up, everyone's fed up. It's just, how can we get out of this? How can we get ourselves out of this mess? Yeah, that's basically what everyone's thinking. Um, and the basic exit strategy is, build up the green line, which is Afghan security forces, draw down ours, get out. Yep. Uh, so, in the NATO summit in Lisbon, in November 2010, uh, it's, it's announced that all Western combat forces will withdraw by December 2014. And that's basically will be the end of the war for the West. And this will be a conditions-based drawdown. So there's a contradiction straight away. It's like, there's the deadline, we'll be out, but it'll be conditions-based. We'll only come out when things are secure. Of course, that's nonsense. It's, there's the deadline, how long does it take us to get the troops out? Let's get them out. And so, pretty much, uh, you know, pretty quickly, NATO begins to pack up, begins to close down bases and pack up. The new commander of ISAF, of ISAF General John Allen, who takes over in July 2011, announces 
that the era of big ideas is over. We just need to work with the Afghans. Afghan, good enough. If it basically works, it's fine. Move on to the next thing. We just need to get this thing sorted. The, the basic problem at the time was they had a difficult partner. So in, in, uh, in 2013, I went into um, Afghanistan to do a bit of work for a man called... Um, uh, uh, oh, God, I was just blanking for my... For the commander of ISAF. Um, and he pulled together a team to look at his war plan and to do a top-secret review of the war plan. I was the British member of an American team. A General, jo General uh, Joseph Dunford, ISAF uh, commander. Uh, and in our study, the basic problem was this. ISAF was drawing down. Really fa Look how fast that drawdown. In one year, it was almost going to... US forces were going to have. Uh, and at the same time, they were trying to build up the Afghan security forces. This was going to be really expensive. Uh, and so Afghanistan was, was experiencing this tr security transition. At the same time, they were experiencing a political transition. Because Hamid Karzai could not serve another term of office. And so we were going to get a transition to a post-Karzai regime. It was a one-in-decade chance to reset Afghan politics. Because Karzai had, with all of his corruption and cronyism, had dominated Afghan politics uh, for over a decade. And interesting enough, the interviews we did, we did a lot of interviews in that Kabul showed, that this is what everyone was, was focused on. Not this. But even the people in, in the army and this police, the chiefs that we interviewed, all said this was the most important thing. Uh, and the basic problem is this at this time, Karzai was, just, was doing classic Karzai meltdown mode. Um, in February of 2013, he bans NATO from conducting airstrikes, which you think might be sensible because of the risk of civilian casualties. But the only thing that was keeping Afghan forces in the field alive were NATO airstrikes. So he has this general pleading with him to let, let, them, let, them, let NATO conduct airstrikes. At the time, the Americans said, we will maintain some forces in Afghanistan, but only if you sign a bilateral security agreement, which allows us to protect our forces legally. And Karzai was refusing to do it. And the Americans saying, if you don't do it soon enough, we can't maintain our forces beyond 2014. In October 2013, Secretary of State Kerry is sent to try and persuade him to sign it. Karzai refuses. In November, he convenes a lawyer Jurger, which is a big meeting, to get them to agree, to get asked their view. Everyone, all the people in lawyer Jurger go, sign the bloody BSA. We desperately need American troops to stay. And Karzai goes, I hear what you say. I'm not going to sign it. And it's because he just refused. And it's partly perhaps because he's concerned about his legacy or whatever. But he instead announces, from this moment on, America's searching of house, blocking of roads and streets, military operations are over, and our people are free in their country. This is of his ally, is what he's saying. There's an election at the time. It's a complete, uh, it's a very undignified uh, scramble for power. And it boils down to two candidates, Ashraf Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah. And what you see actually is, is you know, there's a huge row over this because Ghani is effectively the Pashtun candidate and Abdullah Abdullah is the Tajik candidate. And there's massive fraud in the election. And, and in the first round of the election, Ashraf Ghani only gets 30, 31% of the vote and Abdullah Abdullah gets 45% of the vote. In the second round of the election, Ashraf Ghani flies ahead to 56% of the vote. And, the, and you think, oh, is that because most of the Pashtun candidates are knocked out and, and people vote for him instead? No. It's because you see ballot, ballot box stuffing on an industrial scale. In fact, the one thing the Afghans are really good at is rigging elections. You know, they, they should set up a, a center of excellence in that. Uh, and, and of course, Abdul Abdul is furious. We're at the risk of civil war. Senator Kerry is again dispatched to try and patch things together. And then we get this national unity government where they all come together. And the president is Ashraf Ghani, 
And Abdul Abdul is this prime ministerial character, uh, the, chief the chief operating officer. It doesn't exist in the Constitution. And, and this is where we are today. The simple fact is, both of these guys had promised jobs to everybody in their camps. Think about it. And instead, you've got a government where they only have half the jobs to give out. It takes them three months just to agree who's in their cabinet. To this day, there are, because every job, right down to district governor and district chief of police, are appointed by the president. And to this day, there are tons of jobs not filled because they haven't agreed on them. And so the basic problem Afghanistan has today uh, is, um, uh, is, is national unity government is not unified and doesn't work. So why is Afghanistan relevant? I'm going to pull out some really big points quite quickly. One is the red thing. This, these are different kinds of wars across time. Right? And, and the point is, these wars are ones involving states. The red bit are wars inside states. And, and, and James is quite right. We're focused on Korea, quite rightly, because it's, it's quite amusing. But also, there might be a nuclear war, which is less amusing. But the fact is that, in terms of wars that people are dying every day, it's the red wars. It's the wars inside states, wars like Afghanistan. And in some respects, you know, we've been looking at this for decades. Because if you go back to the 1990s, uh, it did start with this big conventional war, uh, the, war in, in, again, the war to eject Iraq from Kuwait. Uh, in, um, in 1991. And that was a big, you know, lots of... The military love these wars. You see all those arrows? That's brilliant for the military. Because you're, you're destroying vehicles and grabbing ground. It's dead easy. Brilliant. Lovely stuff. But actually, for the 90s, this was the war that occupied people most and policymakers most. The wars in the Balkans. And these are wars amongst the people. So in fact, if you... If, in the early 2000s, if you went into an officer's mess in Britain... The book that all the British officers were reading was a book by General Rupert Smith, the former British officer, called The Utility of Force. And in that, he argues the wars of the future are not the industrial wars of the past, but they're wars amongst the people. They're basically counterinsurgency wars. So the three key lessons from Afghanistan, very briefly, concern the allure of air power, the primacy of politics, and that strategy is elusive. In terms of the war, the allure of air power, Elliot Cohen, and, uh, he talks about the allure of air power. He's a professor of strategy at Johns Hopkins University. And he says, air power is so attractive uh, because it's a bit like modern courtship. It, it offers gratification uh, without commitment. Yeah. Um, and when you look at the Kosovo campaign in, 19, in, in 1998, March of 1998, you can see that. Because NATO, that was NATO's first big war. It was NATO's first war, period, actually. Uh, uh, you know, fighting war. And it was a war of air power. And in March 1998, NATO began to use air power against the, the Yugoslav forces in order to um, persuade them to back down and stop committing atrocities. And it was expected it would last a few days. So the Americans only drew, the NATO only drew up target lists for, a few, for literally a few days. After three days, they'd run out of things to bomb. The NATO air campaign lasted 78 days. And arguably, the Serbs only backed down when the Russians began to put pressure on them. And so the point there is that is what Afghanistan demonstrates, because we ended up deploying thousands of troops on the ground, is you cannot wage these wars from the air. And yet, in Libya, in, in March 2011 in Libya, that's precisely what the British and the Americans tried to do. They tried to intervene in the Lib Lib Libyan civil war with air power. Second has got to do with uh, the primacy of politics. Uh, Karl von Clausewitz is famous, the Prussian theorist, famous, famous for saying that war is a continuation of politics by other means. That war is simply a way that states communicate through force 
and then they continue uh, political relations. But these wars amongst the people, these counterinsurgency wars, it's even more so. It's all about politics, right? It's 80% politics, 20% other stuff. And the basic problem for the West, and this is, a, this is a famous photograph from Vietnam, because we see the exact same problem in Vietnam. Why, why does America lose the Vietnam War? Because the South Vietnamese government is immensely corrupt and is not connected with the people. Is that when we intervene in these wars with military forces, we have hardly any ability, hardly any ability at all to shape what the host nation does, they pretty much launch themselves. And that's your basic problem, because invariably they're corrupt in some way or there's some kind of problem. Last slide. And this gets us to this about the strategy proves elusive. Because what you see in Afghanistan is that by 2010 and 2011, you know, the war on the non-military side was going really well. Even, even after General McChrystal goes and General Petraeus takes over, you have, you've got a clear war plan, the military command is working very effectively. I actually did a study for the, for the ISAF commander where I went around to all the regional commands to find out, are they actually listening to headquarters? Are they following the plan? That was my job, to, to study that. And I came back in October 2010 and said, yep, they know the war plan and they're following it, they're implementing it. It was all tied up. The problem is, that wasn't the important piece. The important piece was politics. What was the political plan to deal with Afghan government corruption and to start talks with the Taliban? And there wasn't one. And this is your basic problem. And this, is, this is a photograph. I'm, I'm over there. I haven't been shaved for a few weeks, actually. Uh, this man here is General Joseph Dunford, who's now uh, Chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's the ISAF commander. And we are briefing him on our study, which is our investigation. This is in 2013. It was our internal study of, of, the, of the ISAF war plan. We're basically saying it's a great plan militarily. But the problem is, the basic problem in Afghanistan is politically. The war is not being won politically. And nobody is taking the lead. There is no political strategy. And Dunford's view was that, uh, that ISAF was an apolitical command. It was not our job to get involved in politics. And in one sense, he was right. Uh, because, you know, uh, Crystal tried to get in politics, involved in politics, and look what happened to him. But that's your basic problem today. That when we intervene in these, in these wars, over time we do develop very effective tactics. We can develop quite unified military commands but actually, nobody is looking at the political strategy, and therefore, there's no political plan to win the war. That's it. Thank you. Okay. Um, we have about 20 minutes for Q&A. And um, first, I want to thank you. Um, we were talking about how um, it's important not to forget this war, but it's also important that we remember it in the right way. And I think this helps us learn from some of these egregious mistakes uh, when the next Afghanistan, but also the current one happens. But also, just to start prime the pump, it's also about what happens when the war comes home. And I did invoke um, the current chief of staff, John Kelly, who was a four-star general, um, lost his son in these wars. And something very disturbing happened recently, and that is when President Trump, in his own special way, um, really botched something that no president wants to do and then call the wife of a, a veteran who's been killed in battle. And um, it's now become, you know, a major political issue. And one of the most disturbing things I thought was when the debate was shut down or the attempt was made to shut it down by saying you don't challenge a four-star general. Um, so what happens in one of the definitions of militarism is when, you know, military comes in and over takes the civilian political 
command. So instead of having an apolitical command, you have a political military command. And yet, we see this as our, you know, as a good thing, you know, because they're surrounding and hopefully buffering us from the worst mistakes that the President of the United States can possibly make. So I just wanted my question, so the long wind is, you know, what happens when the war comes home? I mean, what war are we remembering and how are we remembering it? And uh, unfortunately, um, are we going to learn that lesson? I mean, it, it's absolutely a paradox, isn't it, that our best hope that we're not going to see some catastrophic error in foreign policy by the United States rests on military officers. It rests on uh, General Mattis, who's widely seen as this very reasonable uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, former uh, US Marine General. It rests on H.R. McMaster, who, I mean, many of us know H.R. from his time in London. And, he, you know, he's about as reflective and, and uh, reasonable a guy as you can imagine. He's obviously, he wrote the book, ironically, he wrote the book on the failure of the military to stand up to politicians and speak truth to power. And of course, there's lots of tweets now about how he's not doing that himself. Um, uh, someone said it's, he's now engaged in performance art, very risque performance art of his own book. Um, and then, of course, you've got General John Kelly, who, uh, wonderful, if you follow Twitter, there's wonderful photographs of him shaking his head, holding his head in his hands every time Trump opens his mouth. Um, <laughs> and yet these are the military. And we're looking at the military to try, because, and so it is a very disturbing period. And, but this is also a kind of disturbing conclusion of my, of my work, which is actually, at the end of the day, the diplomats and the, pol the politicians back in Western capitals and the diplomats in Kabul failed to do their job. They failed to get together and produce a coherent international strategy uh, and then pursue that. And in fact, it rested on, on very clever, wily military officers like General McChrystal, like General Dunford, uh, uh, many British ones too, like General Carter, who was there in the photograph, he's now the chief of the British Army, to do politics. Basically, these guys ended up getting, so even though, even though Dunford said, we're apolitical, behind the scenes, they were getting involved in politics, but they couldn't do it, they couldn't do it openly. And they couldn't do it in the way that really should have been done. And yet, so that's very disturbing, I agree. All right, um, let's have some questions um, up top, and then we'll go to the corner there. Yeah. Tom Wilkins, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Uh, thanks, Theo. Uh, while we're on the subject of uh, lessons learned or not learned, uh, could you perhaps just comment uh, a little bit on uh, the lessons of coalition warfare that maybe weren't learned or were learned, and uh, also uh, what lessons weren't learned from the Soviet experience, the Warsaw Pact invasion of Afghanistan that uh, preceded this a couple of decades ago? Thanks. Um, I mean, on the, it's interesting, on the historical lessons, that is very interesting, because, of course, Britain, Britain has a track record of going into Afghanistan. They've done it several times. Um, and it, what is interesting is that it, it would appear that, as far as the Ministry of Defence was concerned, what happened in the, in the 19th century was irrelevant. Uh, and one of my PhD students who wrote a fabulous book about the war in Helmand, uh, he went and took out some original documents from the British Library, accounts of, of the first Anglo-Afghan war, which hadn't been taken out for decades. And you would have expected someone had taken them out, you know, from the Ministry of Defense. So it was quite, it was quite amusing. I mean, the Americans were, were learning lessons. Uh, well, 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 we're thinking about what happened with the Soviet war. And one of, the, one of the reasons why, in 2001 and 2, the Americans, and Roosevelt in particular, were resisting putting more forces in. They were resisting the expansion of ISAF. It was because as much as Tony Blair was focused on the Balkans and trying to prevent an, a return to that, that kind of uh, ethnic atrocities, the Americans were thinking about what the, the Soviet experience and about how Afghans really don't like foreigners with weapons coming around the country. And so the Americans were really worried. 
And even, and in fact, even Gates, even uh, Secretary of Defence Gates, who was the Secretary under George Bush and under, under Obama, he talks about this in his memoirs, which is a really good memoir, where he too is worried about if you increase more and more Western forces and they're more and more visible, won't you just trigger this reaction, you know, Afghan antibodies, as it were. And he's persuaded that the difference is that the Russians, whilst the Russians did some, uh, you know, did a lot of civic development, trained lots of Afghans, their, their counterinsurgency effort was brutal. I mean, it was absolutely brutal. It was turn up a town, raise town, move on to next town stuff. Whereas by, by the time of Secretary Gates, when he talks about this, by his time, the Americans were trying this very careful effort to reduce civilian casualties. And so he persuaded himself that uh, we're not the same as the Russians. So there was some effort at learning lessons. Um, in terms of coalition warfare, uh, you know, I think there's one, one really big lesson for the British. Uh, I, I suspect it applies to other countries as well, which is, is the, British, the British thought about Afghanistan as, oh, we've learned lots of lessons from Northern Ireland. We'll bring them across. Then they realized, no, it's a, bit like North, it's a bit like Korea. You know, it's major warfare we're engaged in. But the one thing they didn't learn from Northern Ireland was the, the Northern Ireland was a 30-year counterinsurgency war for the British. Parts of it were really tough. I mean, really dangerous parts of Northern Ireland for the British Army. And, and it's one of the few examples of where you, they actually defeated, a state defeats an insurgency. Um, and that's because the British Army had a standing headquarters in, in Northern Ireland. They had a standing headquarters. Uh, they didn't rotate it. But in Helmand province, the headquarters changed every six months. So you would arrive, you'd learn about the lay of the land and whatever, you'd record all this information in your computer, and about, by about few, month four or month five, yeah, you basically, you got a bit of understanding, and you develop some relationships, and then you're preparing for the handover, and then you leave. So your Afghan partners have to develop new relationships, mm. and all that information that you'd stored in your laptop, you take away with you. And, and I actually once visited one British command, and I said, oh, where are all these lessons you learned? Oh, they're in that computer over there. So the, the, the British do learn to keep information behind, and they do learn we need, to, we need to pass on information. But what they don't learn is actually what we need is the standing headquarters, where people spend more than six months in the field, in the headquarters. You have to rotate the field forces because they burn out, not the headquarters. So we've got two questions there, and then we'll move to the other side. Yep. Uh, I mean, you can introduce yourself, too. It'd be nice to... I'm marking myself on a PhD in relations. Um, so I, I just at the end of the talk, was it necessary? And the same question that your editor posed to you, which was go back, back to the initial moment of encounter. I can tell you the exact same thing, and yet, except that, go further back, and you know, talking about the Soviet Union. And then the Civil War after that, in the 90s, or at the moment, the period that we know as the Civil War, the destruction that you're talking about, which made it difficult for the Americans to target Taliban, it wasn't caused by the Taliban. It was caused by the allies that in the Afghan model you, you put. And these people are, uh, they, 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 they destroyed Afghanistan, or Kabul to be exact, by fighting power. And yet, the West just gladly welcomed them and embraced them and empowered them for, the, for their collaboration and for welcoming the occupying forces, essentially. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was just wondering, uh, if, if you ask those questions, is it really necessary? You also given that the were willing to hand over someone who has a friends and uh, they were willing to talk and there were uh, things like economic sanctions that they were dealing with, really harsh economic sanctions so forth. Uh, so I, I feel like we're kind of missing the nuance and the complexity of the situation 
by this I'm going to start looking at it from this point onwards, and then that leads to conclusions like this necessary war, and, uh, and also on top of that, uh, making it sort of making it so that these the same mistakes again. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank and, you. And, and this is a really important point, actually. So, in the book, I do talk about this because the interesting question is how do the Americans begin to view the Taliban's regime as a prior state, which is what they do. So even before 9-11, they began to view them as a prior state. And, and, and I do, I've done a series of meetings outside of Afghanistan with senior Taliban, and we were exploring Taliban, Taliban red lines in negotiations, Taliban views about the future of Afghanistan, trying to tease out how, the, how they might approach negotiations. And in that, we began to talk about how the Taliban viewed the United States. And what was interesting is the Taliban never viewed the United States as their enemy. The Taliban were not interested in attacking the United States. That's like zero interest. And when the Taliban regime was originally created, they when, they when they established themselves as a state, they began to reach out to Western states to get expertise and support. And they were rebuffed. And now what happened was that, is that, is that the way that the Taliban treat women was such an anathema to Western values that Western states just couldn't engage with them. So as from the Taliban point of view, they protect women's rights. They're the best government in the world for protecting women's rights. And that, no, I'm not being humorous there. That is their perspective. That, that in other states don't protect women's rights in the way that they do. And obviously what they're talking about is women's, women's moral, women's virtue. Uh, and from a Western perspective, this is, this is farcical, right? And, and what you have under the Clinton administration, particularly Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State, is this abhorrence in the Taliban regime. And, and not just them, the EU likewise. They see the Taliban treatment of their own people, particularly women, as something that they abhor. So even aside from the terrorism business, Taliban is already seen as this prior state. Add on to that the fact that the, the Americans knew that the Taliban were harboring Al-Qaeda and letting them to develop camps. Then you've got the bombings in 98 in Kenya and Tanzania. The Taliban refu refused to hand over Osama bin Laden then. After 9-11, the Americans, they understand the difference between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And they do reach out to the Taliban and say, now is your chance. You've got a tiny window to hand them over. And what's quite clear is the Taliban stall. Now, what's interesting is what's happening inside the Taliban. And you have, you have, a, you have a clerical court around Osama bin Laden in Kandahar, and you've basically got a political administration in Kabul. And, and senior Taliban leaders, the, the guys in Kabul and some of their field commanders, they all go to Kandahar and they say to Osama bin Laden, hand this guy over, for God's sake. If you don't hand him over, we're, we're finished. Hand him over as fast as you can. And Osama bin Laden listens to them and then ignores them. Because, 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 uh, sorry, Mullah Omar. Yes. Because what Mullah Omar, had, because Mullah Omar is not really the brightest cook in town. That's the fact of it. They, he was he was admired as a great Taliban leader for his virtue, but in, and his piety. But actually, he was a bit thick, really. But some Bin Laden manipulated him, and he got really close to Mullah Omar, formed a very close relationship. Yeah. So Mullah Omar was not prepared to give him up. So he was not. And given that, it was absolutely inevitable the Americans would go to war. Yeah. It was, it was, in, and if you read the book, I describe what actually happened in New York and Washington. It was truly horrifying. I mean, it was truly horrifying. So the idea that the Americans wouldn't go to war is just fantastical. But also, they probably had good reason to. So we have time for two brief questions. And um, this is Brendan, and then we'll come over to the other side. You've been very patient. Thank you. Brendan O'Connor. I work at the U.S. Study Center here. Great talk. Really enjoyable. How much of the Americans staying in Afghanistan has to do with keeping an eye on Pakistan 
having troops near Pakistan, going through Pakistan, that's the country that has nuclear technology. That's the country you've probably got to worry about if you got worried about weapons being passed on maybe to some extent. How much, how much do you factor that into your analysis? Um, just to say, not at all. And this part's of the book, because, because the book is very factually based. Uh, there is a very good book that you probably read, um, Conceal and whatever. Uh, there's a Washington Post reporter that did a book where he basically argued that. Yeah, he argued that the Americans wanted to maintain military facilities in Afghanistan so that if, if things went pear-shaped in Pakistan, they could send forces in to try and uh, do something about the pa secure Pakistan nuclear weapons. Um, and I don't know if it's true or not. I mean, I don't know, really. Um, I don't... I, 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 I can't believe the Americans even know where these things are. I mean, for God's sake, it took them ages just to find Osama bin Laden, you know? I'm sure <laughs> the Pakistanis do a lot more work to hide their, their nuclear facilities. And, um, but I could be wrong. But I, because I didn't go into that aspect of things, I don't talk about in the book. It's interesting. Okay. Um, right up there. If you could just identify yourself, it'd be great. Hi. Suzanne Schmeidel, UNSW, Sydney. Um, I found it a very interesting talk. Um, I want to push you on a couple of issues because I may differ with my analysis on that. I'm not a military background person, but I know some things about Afghanistan. They say Afghanistan is a country that's studied probably more than any other and still not understood. And I want to probably push you a bit on the fact that I agree with Mujib that I think your talk failed to highlight some of the complexities. You know, you talk of the Pashtuns, that they were unified. Karzai was a Durrani Pashtun. You know, Ghani is a Gilzai Pashtun. So I think we look at that. You talk about the fact that we didn't shape the host nations. I think I would disagree with you fundamentally with that. That started, in a sense, with the fact that Zama Khalizad asked the king to step down at the emergency lawyer, Jurga, you know, so Karzai was accepted. Karzai was the US's guy. So they got basically the guy they wanted, and maybe they underestimated him. And I think that some of the fine-grained analysis, for me, is missing. Some of the fine-grained analysis, it wasn't just corruption. It was also what happened with some of the leaders that Karzai put in the South that then coalition forces worked with. I'm talking about Shermo Morahund and Helmand. I'm talking about other people over in Uruzgan, as well as in Kandahar, and it continues today working with Razik. So I think there are fundamentally political problems that happened that I think would be worthwhile to acknowledge. So I found that part rather simplistic in your analysis. Let me ask a fair point. Unfortunately, I'm not able to cover everything in the book in a presentation of this scale. Unfortunately, I'm not able to cover everything in the Uh, and if you read the book, you'll find most of that's covered in it, actually. Uh, and so, in particular, I go into Helmand, I look at the tribal politics in Helmand. So the story in Central Helmand, for instance, when I'm looking at one aspect of Central Helmand, the British turn up in a village, uh, they turn up in, in, in Nani Alley, and uh, the district governor says, well, the Taliban are over there, and British go with the police and we have the Taliban. But what they don't realize, of course, is that the, the police, controlled by um, Akhidran and Jan, are on your side, and the villagers are corrosion. Uh, and this long-standing dispute between the Norzai and the Kuroshi. Uh, and in fact, what happens, uh, and the York's writer book talks about this, is that, so, when Karzai comes into power, one of the things that the, the Karzai, but also everyone's concerned about is the return to civil war. And they want to stabilize the country as fast as possible. And so Karzai co-ops co a lot of the warlords. And that's your basic problem. A lot of the warlords come back into power. So though in the South, the British insist that Shurban Alexander comes out, 
seven other warlords who were booted out by the Taliban come back into power. And so you're absolutely right in saying that we did shape the host nation. It's correct. What, what, but when the Americans woke up to the fact that they were dealing with massive corruption, and you see that with, for instance, um, the current national security advisor, Peter McMaster, he leads the anti-corruption task force uh, under General McChrystal. It's too late. There's nothing they can do in terms of dealing with that kind of corruption because they have facilitated the creation of corrupt state. You are correct in saying that it's very complex travel uh, politics. I go into that in great length in the book, for instance, talking about signing a peace accord that collapses and happens in Musicala. Uh, but also, I'm the first to recognize that I scratched the surface. And in fact, um, one of my PhD students, um, um, Mike Martin, wrote an oral history of the, of the war in, uh, in Hamad, which is immensely complex in terms of tribal politics. There's a big annex just describing tribal politics. And he's the first person to say, I barely understand tribal politics. So I, I think the point is very clear, which is this is one of the challenges that we have uh, in coming into intervening in the conflict where we have the barest notion of what's going on. The book does try to go into tribal politics and quite a lot and the kind of things you're talking about. But it's also true, if we go into much greater detail, then the book will be more than five Well, it's five pages away from here, but it's even longer. I think that's a very good point to end. First, with a plug for the book, go out and buy it. Um, but secondly, that um, the complexities are um, sometimes overwhelming, yet it doesn't absolve us from the responsibility to try to learn more. So I want to thank very much uh, Professor Theo Farrell for helping us um, get a little closer to what's happening uh, there and how perhaps to prevent it from happening somewhere else in the near future. So please join me in, in thanking him and welcoming him to Australia. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.